stand by me. Let's protect this tree from the freeway misery. Who knows how the monster started to grow that way? Her parents are frightened, wish it would go away. But the taxes keep coming, they have to be spent on the big bull. And the tanks of cement Oh, stand by me Let's protect this tree From the freeway misery Well, hello Welcome back to the American Writers uh, podcast And I am, yeah, continuing my look at the works of Aldo Leopold um, Specifically his his various professional short writings Different essays, uh, manuscripts and things he wrote Collected in the Library of America anthology of Aldo Leopold's uh, Conservation and Ecology Writing. It's a really uh, useful book, not just for the beautiful San County Almanac, but for all the other assorted uh, uh, materials that are collected here. So I spent the last two episodes looking at his writings from from 1917 to, to the depths of the Great Depression. And now we're going to to finish that up and look at the writing specifically from 1938 to 1948, the year he died, of course. Um, and so here we're really getting close to his the ideas as reflected in the San County Almanac, but there's a really a lot of great essays here. And I think he, in some ways, I think the theme here is his movement to, to solutions. Uh, he's kind of established some of the problems, some of the contradictions, like between economism and conservation, between people who want to preserve wilderness for sportsmen and for uh, game farming versus those who want to preserve it purely for nature. Um, so he has these problems well established, but he starts getting to more solutions here. And even beyond strictly government conservation efforts, uh, things like education and ethics. And I think that's one of the things he's most no well known for, obviously, is the land ethic. So... So, but we really see him getting there in these these uh, this final set of essays. There's quite a few of them. I think by my count, there's 22 of them or so. Yeah, 22 essays. Some of them are quite short. Quite a lot of things are just typescripts or manuscripts in this collection too. These were things that he was thinking about, but didn't get around to publishing or, or just uh, decided not to publish for whatever reason. But it doesn't mean there's not really good ideas and interesting ideas in them. Um, so the first one I want to look at is called A Survey of Conservation, uh, written in 1938. It's a, it's a typescript. And I think this is a really, it's a, it's a rather pessimistic piece, I think. It's really, the context of this is the failure to meet conservation goals. In the opening line, he talks about it as a, as a, a conservation is a bird that always is flying faster than the, the shot that's aimed at it. So you can never quite catch it. Um, and I think certainly in our day and age, we feel this way too. Like, you know, we have, we have much more consciousness about conservation. We have many more regulations than in Leopold's time. We're aware much more of just how serious the crisis is. But, you know, for every step we take forward, we take two steps back because our system is just simply fundamentally unsustainable. So this is a really, really good essay. It's actually kind of a pity it wasn't published earlier. Um, now, like often he does, he, he gets into the the ecological history, but it's all to speak to the regret of the loss, right? Like, you know, how we, well, like when a species goes extinct, he says, we, we feel bad for it, but we immediately kind of get on with our lives and then continue to eradicate the next species. And he, and he 
talks about wolves here too and he i love this point he makes about the wolves um he says um we debate such questions in terms of economics and biology the mammalologist asserts the wolf as a natural check to too many deer the sportsman's reply that they'll take care of excess deer another decade of argument there'll be no wolves to argue about one conservation ink pot cancels another until the resource is gone why because the basic question has not been debated at all the basic question hinges on a refined taste in natural objects. Is the wolfless Northwoods any Northwoods at all? And that's the, I think, the fundamental question he's, he's getting at here is, you know, once you destroy part of the woods, do you, does the woods exist anymore? Yeah, something artificial exists. Something man-made exists. The wolfless Northwoods are man-made, um, essentially. I mean, certainly species go extinct all the time, but, that's you know, the wolves do not just disvanish because of, uh, climate change or something or, or, or just uh, natural history, maybe over millions of years that can happen, they, they were eradicated pretty systematically by the state by farmers, by agriculture keep, keep in mind agriculturalist for the next essay um, so uh, quite a lot here about striving towards a land ethic as well and the need for a foundation in conservation in ethics um and, and education, right? And he actually compares pretty directly, like harmony with with land, with nature, requiring, like, on the same way we think about how do we achieve harmony among people, it's the same kind of problem, right? Like this, this expanding circle of ethics we've talked about before. Um, but the solution, it seems to be, to some degree, education, um, moral education about nature. Um, now, that itself, I'm not sure, I'm not convinced of either, to be frank. I mean, we could make all everyone take ethics classes, environmental ethics classes in high school. But, you know, we teach civics classes. That doesn't necessarily make a for a vibrant democracy. Um, it's good to have education, but, you know, what is the nature of that education and how is it achieved? How central will ecology be to education? He actually addresses this later on in, a, in another essay, I think. We kind of talk about, about like ecology should be central to all curriculum in a way. It should be the underpinning of of not just land economics, not just uh, conservation, but it should be essentially the foundation of a civilization. And I, and I think that's where we need to go. So I like this essay. I, I don't know why it wasn't published, but it's it's a really nice piece. Now the next one um, is called Farmerist Conservationist, and this was published publicly. This is, was in the American Forests. He published a lot in American Forests, actually, in June 1939. Um, and I'll just come on and say it. it. It's basically economist versus nature and conservation. The, the old problem coming back again and again, right? And nowhere is this seen more than the farmer, right? And like when he criticized the AAA, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, he, he accused it of like, okay, they leave land fallow and they get paid for it, but they're not being paid to restore land to wilderness. They're not being paid to create ecosystems for, for wildlife or, or, or anything like that. They're just being paid to leave land fallow. It's not necessarily good for the land, right? We want, we want to restore land to wilderness. And he thinks that there should be a, more part, a bigger part of that. But it gets to the problem of like, you know, the farmers have so much of the land of the country, right? And so much of the land of the country is under cultivation and to some degree. So in a way, he's right. You're going to have to get the farmers on board, conservation efforts, land conservation. 
Uh, the question is, how do you do that? I d now, I agree with him, I think. There's nothing natural to say like a farmer is going to have a closer tie to the land. Like somehow if you get your hands dirty every day in the dirt, you know, pulling weeds or whatever. He actually talks about weeds later on, I think. But it's it doesn't necessarily make for an ecologist, right? So that's also got to be a process of education. But um, on the one hand, you know, can... You can you is there an economic solution like a tax cut? Can you tax cut your way to conservation? I'm not sure. I don't think he's sure, but certainly I think he's right that the farmers have to be a part of this this process. But that's going to be less and less likely now with farming more and more controlled by market forces and, and controlled by factory farming and the food producer food food manufacturers and all that kind of stuff. But overall, it's it's the main it's the old problem of of econ like economism. Uh, next, uh, a biotic view of the land. This was published in the Journal of Forestry, nineteen thirty nine. Uh, this is just a nice summary of ecology of ecological thinking. Um, you know, presenting to the public. You know, the land is not merely soil. This is quoting him. The land is not merely soil that the native plants and animals keep the energy circuit open. Others may or may not. The man-made changes are of a different order than evolutionary changes. These are all crucial points in ecology, right? That you can't look at. You got to look at water, soil, the so-called energy circuit, flora, fauna, agriculture, all is part of a system, right? Um, that's That can be disrupted by humans and is disrupted by humans, obviously. Nature needs balance, it has its merits, its defects, but collectively it, it, it functions, right? It's self-correcting and all that. So uh, a nice, good summary of, of ecology. All right, moving on. Next, lakes in relation to terrestrial life patterns. This is a symposium on hydrobiology. I, I don't know if that was a conference paper. I guess it was. A, it's a paper presented for a conference, I think. Um, but 1941. You don't got anything from 1940 here. Um, this is just about the relationship. It's, it's ecology again, but it's the relationship between soil systems and water health and how you can't look at these as separate uh, problems. Um, obviously, that's what we'd expect from Leopold at this stage of his career to, to look at these things more holistically. But he really has his rants about... Uh, about mechanization here, which I, which I, which I, as you know from my last episode, I'm finding increasingly interesting just how much he's talking about like the mechanized world. And, and the reason I think about that a lot is because Lovecraft, who I'm also doing a series on right now in his letters in the 30s, you know, was really obsessed with this problem of, of mechanization. And both of these writers seem to think mechanization is, is something that really can't be fully redeemed. That if we, if we want to, you know, Lovecraft's more pessimistic about it, perhaps more fatalistic about that. He just thinks this is the way history is going. But both are pretty bleak about what that means for for the world around them. Maybe Lovecraft more of a social ecosystem and an artistic, especially an artistic one for for Leopold, obviously. Uh, life. Now, there is a bit of a solution here, and he comes to it at the end. He says a prudent technology should alter the natural order as little as possible. And yeah, I think that's easy to say. It's harder to actually do. But obviously, if we can get a technology that replicates nature, that, that copies nature, you know, that's going to be a lot healthier, I think, than, than 
what we have now. Um, now how far away is that? Is it is it possible? That's maybe somewhat a philosophical question or a question for scientists to to engage in. But I, I think he's right there. Uh, that technology at some point needs to replicate and, and, and nature and be part of nature itself. And that doesn't just mean gadgets. Uh, it also means like our systems or things like agriculture, right? Permaculture aims to replicate nature much more than than like monocropping. And it turns out it's just almost just as productive. It's just uh, not as conduct conducive to mass profits for, for corporations. They rely on heirloom crops, for instance, which have many of the same drought resistance technologies that the genetically modified foods do, you know, because, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but this is my understanding of it, that, that many of the heirloom crops, like actually much of the genetically modified crops, they borrow genes and traits from some of these heirloom public domain seeds that have been, you know, in humanity for thousands of years. Like how many types of potatoes were grown by the Inca in Peru, you know, for different, um, you know, cultivated and bred for different um, altitudes, for dry, for more wet. You know, we we figured out how to make drought resistant crops, you know, thousands of years ago. It's just we weren't using them, but these seeds still exist and we and we can use them or we can use genetically modified crops owned by Monsanto. It seems one's more sustainable and more democratic than the other. But anyways, that's getting way off the point of this 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 particular essay, though. Um, lakes in relation to terrestrial life patterns. It's really just about soil and water being connected. And obviously with erosion, which is something that Leopold was really interested in and taught, wrote a lot about, that's obvious to see, I think. Um, so next we have Wilderness as a Land uh, Laboratory, 1941. Um, I, I think what he's saying here, this is a really short piece, by the way, published in The Living Wilderness. Um, what I think he's saying here is wilderness is the canary in the coal mine of broader ecological crises. It's there we can see the symptoms of the and the decline of the wilderness means we're going to lose that. Um, so he's making a case here for why we need the wilderness. This is because it, it is something that can can send us warnings if we study it, if we look at it. Um, he says, or it's also the if it's not the canary in the coal mine, it is just the baseline normalcy. Like we can compare like our systems that we create with the wilderness and say, you know, the wilderness has survived for millions of years, agriculture for a few thousand. So what? is it that nature has that we're doing wrong, right? It can kind of be, that that sort of, sort of means it's the land laboratory. So I think it works both ways, but maybe that's the more important one, is that the wilderness should be our gateway into, into what a healthy environment or a healthy uh, ecology would look like. Um, next, yet come June, this is a manuscript, a handwritten thing written in the winter, the day before Christmas, no, no, December 23rd, so the day before Christmas Eve in 1941. Um, it's a little short piece, and I, I think it just comes, it, it's really beautiful. It's, it's only four paragraphs, but it's all about the definition of progress, and it's a really great piece. Um, he writes this, 
Philosophy spread over the empires, teaching the good life with tank and bomb. Machines crawl over the empires, hauling goods. Goods are plowed under or burned. Goods are hawked over the ether and along lanes where Whitman smelled locust blossoms morning and evening. Quarrels over goods are planted thick as trees along the rivers of America. The oil full of goods floats down the rivers, settles in the swimming holes. Fish choked with goods float belly up in the shallows. Dikes to grow goods dry up the water follow fowl. Dams to make goods block the salmon runs, but not the barges carrying goods. Railroads carrying goods race the barges. Trucks carrying goods race the railroads. Cars carrying consumers of good race to trucks, yet the trees grow. The folklore of goods fills the curriculum. Farmers learn the farm is a factory. Chemists and physicists harness power. Biology harnesses plants and animals, all for goods. Politics is the redistribution of goods. Literature and art portray the drama of the haves and have-nots. Research is not to depict the universe, but to set up production, yet the trees grow. Um, that's not the whole of it, but that's a big chunk of it. Really nice little piece. Uh, a little bit of poetry there. Next, uh, The Round River, A Parable in Conservation. This was a typescript written in 1941. Um, and here he uses this round river in Wisconsin, uh, which was an early wonder of Wisconsin. Uh, and he kind of uses the Paul Bunyan metaphor a few times in the story, in, in his later writings too. I think, you know, that's a popular folktale from, from the Wisconsin because it was a lumberjack, it was a lumber area for a long time. But, you know, had Paul Bunyan been successful, there'd be no trees left in America, right? That's, that's the problem with Paul Bunyan. Uh, and our ecology would be fundamentally altered. Um, so the Round River then is an old marvel of Wisconsin that's, that's declined. So he uses this then as a metaphor for ecology and for the biotic community. Now he gets at the end here to the problem of of an ecological agriculture, which we've already sort of hinted at with the essay on farmers, but he takes on it actually fairly directly here. And this is really, he's, he's kind of fighting with the pioneers. He, he does the, this quite a lot as well, where he kind of acknowledges the achievement of the frontiers pioneers, but he realizes that they had a totally lack of any understanding of ecology, long-term consequences of what they, they did. And so he looks at like the abundant, quote, the abundant crops, which evoke Thanksgiving and the pioneers is well known, but there's also a burst of wild plants and animals. A score of imported food bearing weeds have been added to the native flora on and on. So, um, I mean, that that's even goes beyond just agriculture a bit to say, like when we do things, we sometimes notice the man-made or like what's obviously man-made, like the farms and the, and the barns and the cities we don't always notice the other man-made parts, which might be the invasive species or, or the new animals that, that enter into the landscape and how it affects them. That's, that's under the surface, but more long-term, it has a big impact on us. So a lot of nice things in this, uh, the Road River essay. Next, The Grizzly, A Problem in Land Planning. This was published in Outdoor America in 1942. Um, and this is kind of getting back to this question of, of can we get the farmers and particularly here the landowners on board with conservation and the specific question is how do you save the grizzly bear when farmers you know have no problem killing the grizzly bear or see them as dangerous not nearly it's like the same problem with the wolves wolves got it much worse than bears by the way but both kind of got screwed over by the expansion of agriculture and ranching 
And Leopold here asks the question, how can land planning uh, save the grizzly bear? And one solution is, is government buying ranch land and then put it into some kind of grizzly protection area. So he's kind of saying we, we got to split up the, the ranch land to bear ranges to and stock ranges. And that's going to take government action of essentially buying up, buying back land from from ranchers. More, you know, he's he often has big questions about ethics, about like like ecology, but he's still thinking in terms of policy from time to time. And that's good. You need that that kind of policy side to it. Uh, I think there that's maybe it's not. I don't think it's a problem with with uh, a San Colony Almanac, but you know. If you're looking for the policy prescriptions, you're not going to get it there. But it doesn't mean Leopold doesn't think about them. He, he spent his whole career uh, thinking about policy. Uh, okay, nine. Well, this is the ninth one for in my numbering in my notes, but um, they're not numbered in the book. Uh, next one, I mean, uh, the role of wildlife in a liberal education. This was a conference presentation from 1942, and this is, I think. Uh, directly an exploration of the role of, of ecology in education and the role of, of, or the relationship between education and ecology in other ways as well. Like in a democracy, like what should education look like? And it should also reflect um, diversity and exchange from different points of view in the same way nature works. He's got this nice little figure here which he calls line of dependency, food chains in a community. He actually has predators, exploitation, services, and parasites. So on one end, we have like the rock and the soil, um, ragweed, quail, and then the relationship between quail and fox being predators and the horned owl and the fox being services. You know, this is all that kind of an eco ecological mapping, right, of, a, of an ecosystem. But when he gets to like cow, who's connected to alfalfa as a, you know, it's called an exploitation here. The farmer exploits the cow, and then the farmer provides services to the grocer, to the lawyer, to the student. Um, what he's doing in this map then, this kind of uh, chart, it's like a flow chart almost, is, but it's actually, a, I don't know if ecologists have a name for this type of chart, but it's just showing the relationships of all the different things in the, in the ecosystem. But the student, the teacher, the union, secretary, the mechanics, they're all part of the ecosystem. And I think that's, you know, important to, to keep that in mind. That's, of course, true. We're, we're dependent on nature, uh, just as we transform nature. So, but I think in terms of education, you know, do we educate people better when we do it in a sense that models natural learning and, and ecology? This is a short essay, so we can't really cover all these issues. Some of this is my brain kind of running with it, but, you know, it's, I kind of agree. Um, but he thinks, uh, essentially, ecology should be a bigger part of all curriculum and, and essentially like a foundation of all liberal education. And I don't disagree. I think it's a, an important idea. It's a very interesting conference presentation from the North American Wildlife Conference. Okay, the next one, The Last Stand, Outdoor America, 1942. Um, this is a pessimistic piece. It is called The Last Stand. Um, so it's, it's not, you don't expect an up, uplifting piece. But 
it's about the end of natural abundance and it's about the long-term impact of of extinction of the end of this natural abundance we're losing wild wilderness we're losing that cornucopia of wealth of the land through our actions and the bad news is recovery is not something in the human the scale of a human life it's in the scale of thousands of years or millions of years so like uh, he said in previous articles um, wilderness is not a renewable resource it will come back I mean, when we're long gone, or we figure some way of living more positively with with nature and with other living systems, it will repair, but it'll take a very, very long time for that to happen. It won't be overnight. Uh, so recovery of, of the ecosystem is not on a human scale. And there's, you know, what's lost is lost for, for, from our perspective. Um, so next... Uh, land use and democracy. This was published in Autobahn in 1942. It's a, it seems like it's a big question, but it ends up being a fairly short piece. But most of these pieces are short. Um, now, on one hand, this is something he's been struggling with his whole life. It's the relationship between how we use land and how we as people in a society and a democracy decide how that land is used. So, for instance, we saw this early on in his career, the struggle between the people who want to see wilderness used for for game farming and those who want to see it used for for just pleasure or those who want to have pure conservation, see wilderness exist for its own right. This is essentially a problem of democracy, right? If the land is owned by all under the stewardship of the government of the state, it, it's hard to say, well, you can't use it that way, right? But at the same time, we got to think what's the greater interest of all people. Now, let's say sports people are 1% of the population, but they're the ones who most conspicuously use the land, right? They obviously can't speak for the 99% who maybe don't hunt. Um, and I think this is something he grappled with throughout his career, obviously. Here he goes farther, though, and I think it's important that he goes beyond those petty issues of policy that he had to struggle with in the Forest Service. He's, going to, he's talking about education here. He's talking about the utter failure of econ, economic, economism as a solution to ecology. And he talks about the essential role of government in, in mitigating the harm caused by, by humans, right? And, you know, I think when I read newspaper reports today, you know, or that debate between Biden and Trump not long ago, where Biden says, well, the, like the New Deal won't pay for itself or something, and he doesn't want to support it because it can't pay for itself. And then you have other people who say the New Deal will pay, the Green New Deal will pay for itself, right? Well, I don't know. I look at it. Did the New Deal itself pay for itself? I don't think so. Did does the U.S. military pay for itself? I mean, a lot of things that government does don't pay for themselves because we value something uh, that, it, that government does above and beyond it being profitable, right? In fact, if, it's, if something is not, can't pay for itself or can't, be profitable only government can do it right or some kind of collective um, cooperation so you know government really has to step in here and he talks about cooperation of different groups this is something he played with before in a previous essay um, how kind of a bottom-up synergy of different groups with different interests can create a coherent and sustainable policy for for land use so an important piece uh, published in Audubon Moving on, um, the prairie, the forgotten flora. 
this is a TypeScript from 1942. It's a really good piece too. Um, this, no, it, it's also getting back to this theme of like, of how we as humans observe things and observe nature. He talks about the loss of the prairie ecos, ecology. Like you go to the prairie today and if, you, if you're not in a farm, most of it's been transformed into farm. But if you do get to something that looks like the prairie, you don't, you're so detached from what the prairie looked like. I mean, it's a question of ecological history, right? The grasses are all gone uh, for the most part. The, the wildlife's gone. You know, even if it's not turned, turned into a farm, what was once there isn't there anymore. And it's a, he calls it the forgotten flora. Um, you know, it's just, we don't even know from our perspective what's there. An ecological environmental historian, a natural, a natural historian might know what's there, but we don't even know what the prairie is anymore. And, and that's uh, the point of this essay. Quote, some of the prairie plants are now nearly extinct. Many have become uncommon. None retain their original dominance, save only ragweed which was adopted, adapted to ground torn up by the buffalo and now finds ground torn up by McCormick to be just as good. Most of the prairie flora has disappeared from view, partly by reason of plow and cow, and partly by reason of competitive Asiatic and European weeds and grasses. Um, it's, just, it's just more of a story of loss. And it's, uh, it's an unfortunate one, but it's, it's why repair can't happen. Like, It'll, it'll never be back. Even if a new kind of wilderness emerges in this area when humans lay off or are gone, it won't be the same because it'll be there'll be a new evolutionary set with new new plants and animals existing there. All right. Next, uh, what is a weed? This is one of my favorites, actually. It's a TypeScript from 1943, um, August 2nd, 19, 1943. Um, and here he takes on the farmer's attitude. A little bit, and this is this uh, again is asking this question: Can farmers be part of uh, of the ecological consciousness? And they have to be. We we kind of assume they have to be, but they're not, right? And here he gives an example why, and that's everything's a weed. Anything that's not a plant that they cultivate is a weed, and assumed to be destructive. And you pull it out, right? Well, if you just recklessly pull out everything that's foreign. And, and foreign is a weird term there because corn's not native to Ohio, Iowa, whatever, Wisconsin. If you just pull out everything that's not what you're trying to cultivate, you're pulling out a lot of plants that aren't damaging to your crops. You're just you're just kind of in a blanket approach to it. So he asks, he says this is actually something that needs to be investigated. You know, is everything a weed, and is farmers' attitudes to blanket towards any plant? Um, and he actually talks about how he uses the word blacklisting, how plants have been blacklisted and, you know, by farmers. And this has been over, overly destructive and not, uh, not necessary. A waste of labor and a waste of, of, of the life of those plants, obviously. And then he says, well, not only is this true for weeds, it's true for rodents. Uh, quite, quote, the same false premise characterizes rodent control. Overgrazing is probably the basic cause of some of the, or most outbreaks of range rodents. The rodents thriving out in the weeds, which replace the weakened grasses. This relationship is still conjectural. And it is significant that no rodent control agency has, to my knowledge, started any research to verify or refute it. Still, if it is true, we may poison rodents till doomsday without effecting a cure. The only cure is range restoration. So that's the other side of the weed problem is like, 
your weed problem comes from the way you cultivate the land. You know, if if you didn't do it this way, it wouldn't be weeds, right? And I'd be interested, like, what permaculturists, if they have, what's their attitude towards weeds and, and, and other kind of seemingly invasive species? Like, I didn't plant that. What's it doing here? Well, do they actually investigate what's its ecological niche, why it's there, and maybe try to get to the root cause? Do they let it be? Do they, do they pluck it? I'm sure sometimes it has to be plucked out, but, you know, I don't know. Things I, things I need to learn more about, I guess. Uh, what do we got here? There's one here called The Post-War um, Prospects, 1944. And he's, he's again being kind of pessimistic here uh, about the pace of bad news about environment and the lack of good news. And, and he kind of is like, well, I don't think it's going to change much in the post-war period. I think there's a limit to what can be done, but... But he does kind of offer some hope in maybe policies and new attitudes. Uh, next, we have conservation in whole or in part. This is a typescript from 1944. Um, and here, again, this is an old question. A lot of these things he's writing about in 1944 are very similar to what he was writing about in 1924. And, he, and here's a good example of that. Like, it's worded a little bit differently. It's phrased differently, but at its heart, it's the same. And that is, you know... Do we address the land as a whole or do we engage in conservation for single purposes? And I think we know where he stands on this by this point, that essentially, yes, you need to conserve the land as a whole. You can't just say, let's conserve the deer and not have an eye to the wolf population or, or the grasses or, or the health of the forest overall, whatever it might be. Um, and a lot here also about loss about how, just how much has, has been lost. And that's a part of the whole conversation of conservation, just the, the huge amount of loss that's already been inflicted on, on nature. All right, next, Outlook for Farm Wildlife. This is the conference paper from 1945. It kind of sits next to the weed conversation because I think it's the same one. Like, to what degree does wildlife dwell on in agriculture lowland? Certainly some duh, does, but we're not talking about wilderness here. We're talking about animals thriving or getting by in agricultural land. They could be rodents, right? Uh, and he, he, as we saw, he just was thinking about the rodent problem in a previous piece. Now, he, he talks about, you know, like the, the problem is the humans see the farm as a food factory and a place to live, right? It's those things at the same time. It's it's. And he uses this word very carefully, food factory, right? Not just a place to cultivate food, but a food factory. And that's, he's being kind of critical of it to be, if it's seen that way, I think. I think he wouldn't have used that language of mechanization of industrial culture. I think he used it on purpose, but also as a place to live. But if wildlife has no place in the food factory farm, which apparently it doesn't, um, it does have part of the farm as a place to live. It, it makes at rural areas livable, right? And I don't know if anyone's studied this, but, you know, you hear stories once in a while about, like, the exodus of rural areas or farm, younger generation farmers leaving the farm, maybe because they think they can't make a living as a family farmer or better opportunities in the cities or whatever it might be. But, you know, if you destroy all wildlife, it's it certainly is a less pleasant place to live, right? So the sustainability of farming as a way of life I think is, is a question for America. 
you know, I, I came across this teaching human geography. Like, you know, it's, you know, you think about the Jeffersonian ideal and how much Americans valued land ownership and, and self-sufficiency in their, in their revolution and their ideology. But the U.S., even for developed countries, has one of the lowest farm populations in the world. I think it's because of the mass centralization of capitalist food production to some degree and the, the total devastation of natural ecosystems with monocropping and, and, and pretty abhorrent stuff. Maybe if we kind of did think more about the, what our rural areas will look like holistically and ecologically, maybe it would be more attractive to more people to engage in that lifestyle. People sometimes want to move to rural, to countryside, move out in the woods or something, but not really as farmers, right? retirement or uh, something like that maybe with permaculture it's changing but i think it's 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 changing pretty slow all right where are we at that was the farm wildlife okay land health concept and conservation this is a manuscript from 1946 this has a variety of different issues dealing with land health uh, water health violence towards land use I only mention this, there's not that much new here, but he does bring up something he doesn't really obsess about much uh, in his other writings, but he come, brings it up here, and I think it's relevant to mention, and that is he does sort of bring up overpopulation. Now, the peak of the panic about overpopulation, I guess, would have been the 60s. That's when Paul Ehrlich wrote his book, The Population Bomb. It's when you have like the some science fiction novels like Make Room, Make Room, Stand on Zanzibar, which are about population. But I think, you know, there were concerns earlier, right? I, I know like the, the, Brit the famines in India caused by obviously British policy in India, and they happened even up, right up to the end of British rule. This was kind of explained by people who are ignorant of the real reasons for it as saying, oh, there's just too many Indians, right? Too many poor people. So you get this Neo-Malthusian kind of entering the discourse around that time. And, and Leopold here is not immune from it. He does talk about many underdeveloped regions of the world are, over, are overpopulated. I don't like the whole discourse of overpopulation. That's why, that's why I mention it, but it's here. It, it, it's, it's brought up here. But overall, I don't think Leopold is a Malthusian. I don't think he's obsessing about human population. Um, even if he maybe in this article exposes some concerns about it. Um, eight, uh, oh, the next one, uh, Scarcity, Values, and Conservation. Another manuscript. I think most of what's left are manuscripts. Um, maybe one conference. But the rest are manuscripts or typescripts. Um, Scarcity, value, and conservation. But this is 1946, and it's a it's a short piece, but it's about the need for diversity in in nature. And the real value here is like nostalgia, or the things he's talking about here are things like nostalgia about loss and about kind of some ennui about that loss. And I, I think that's what he means by the scarcity value. It's like. When we look at nature today, we, we see it as something scarce, as declining, as something that's going away soon. And that affects us and maybe drives us to action here. But that's not the healthiest way of looking at it, I guess. Uh, next, deadening. This one's only a few lines. So I'll read the whole thing. It's a manuscript, 1946. 
Quote, the old oak has been girded and was dead. Sorry, the old oak has been girdled and was dead. There are degrees of death in abandoned farms. Some old houses cock an eye at you as if to say, somebody will move in, wait and see. But this farm was different. Girdling an old oak to squeeze one last crop out of the barnyard has the same finality as burning furniture to keep warm. Unquote. So, um, yeah, I think the point's clear. Uh, destroying the future. We destroy our, our future permanently uh, when we cut down that last tree. Uh, next one. Uh, wherefore wildlife ecology? Uh, a manuscript from the spring of 1947. Now, it, this seems to be like, like a course lecture. It, it's a, it starts out at the beginning of this course. I did not try to define this object because any attempt at definition would, at that time, have consisted of meaningless words. I shall not confide to you what the course is driving at. So it seems to be a lecture note. I, I wonder how much of these manuscripts are actually maybe like lecture notes or things he wrote in preparing classes or whatever. But yeah, it's just his attempt to try to define conservation and ecology and some of the, the big problems and, and fallacies in modern day conservation. Uh, and he takes on here the economism problem as well, right? That, that you really can't buy your way or, or marketize your way out of, out of these problems. Um, Instead, we need to see ourselves as part of a community of nature, a community, part of the same community with nature. All right, next, uh, the ecological conscience. This was written in 1947. It was the bulletin, no, sorry, it's the bulletin, it's not a conference, it's the bulletin of the Garden Club of America. So it's a little essay he wrote for them. And this is, this is about education again and about the need to teach ecology. So I think it's a really good case for why we need to teach ecology. And he, he makes the case through some kind of metaphors. He talks about the, the Paul, he uses the Paul Bunyan metaphor again called Paul Bunyan's deer. Now, what he's sort of saying here is like the, the plot, like the destruction of the, of the old, of the, of the Northwoods made the way for the introduction of an overpopulation of deer, right? Because you drove out predators and disrupted the ecology so that's why they're paul bunyan's deers um, and he gives a few other examples of how like these metaphors can can be useful in, in, in forcing us to think ecologically about things um, and then the final piece here we have the deer swath which was a type script written february 29th 1948 less than two months before his death and he, he talks about a, like a a new swath of deer that he observed and, and then this gets him to meditate about deer hunting and the methods of deer hunting. And it's all pretty, it's kind of, it kind of takes us back to his old days as a, as a, as a more active hunter. Um, but at the end of this, he kind of gets back to his, a little bit of malaise about where we're going from here. And it kind of reminds me of Paul Bunyan's deer, right? You can create conditions that, that are destructive ecosystems, but maybe good for one species. Right, like deer might thrive in an environment where there's no wolves, but of course it, it's incredibly dreadful long-term to the deer and, and to, to others, right? So he asked this question. It's a good way to end this, this episode, I guess, and this section of, of Leopold's work. Quote, the common denominator of all hunters is the realization that there's always something to hunt. The world teems with creatures, processes, and events which are trying to elude you. There's always a deer and always a swath down which he can, which he can be seen. 
Every ground is a hunting ground, whether it lies between you and the curbstone or in these illuminable woods where rolls the Oregon. The final test of a hunter is whether he's keen to go hunting in a vacant lot. End quote. And that's how it ends. And I, I think that's that's maybe our end, right? Like Now, I have a personal story here. It's not hunting in a vacant lot, but you know, I, I love Taiwan, but you know, in Taiwan, camping is kind of a new hobby. It's it's not common. And you know, I, I still try to go out once a year when I'm back in the US. But I went I went camping. I don't know, it's probably like five years ago now. Cause some neighbors or it was like my daughter's friends, neighbor like classmates wanted to go. So we went camping. Uh, and this the area was kind of nice, but the campgrounds were essentially set up on like a revamped parking lot. <laughs> um, and you had very, very because space was at a premium, I guess. And it was a private place. You had rent the space. It was more like a KO campground, like the campgrounds you, you get when you're, you're traveling out west, right? Where it's mostly for like campers, but you can set up a tent there. But it's really close, right? And you have shared bathrooms and all that. And then, so you don't really have a privacy. You don't have much nature. You can kind of walk around to get some, but not in your campsite. It's not like camping in like central Wisconsin where you're, you're kind of all by yourself um, if you want to be. And then like you look at what people brought and they brought tents, but they also brought like whole kitchens and you had people cooking like really elaborate Chinese style meals and curry. And some people brought like TV movie projectors and screens. And, and they, of course they had their beer and they're watching movies. And it was like one of the weirdest camping experiences I've ever had. Right. And, and I didn't feel pleasant for me. I, I didn't like it. Um, I didn't feel like I was getting much out of it in terms of kind of enjoying nature. Right. It seemed a social event, um, which is fine if that's what you, if you want to do, but it's akin. It's that's why I'm saying this. It's akin to, to hunting on the parking lot. You can't hunt. We could have deer in a parking lot, you know, somehow find a way for them to survive and you can shoot them. But if you say, no, I don't want to do that, you're acknowledging that your reason for hunting is not purely to kill an animal and to eat it, that you're hunting for some other experience. And therefore you're acknowledging the necessity of protecting that other experience, that other part of it. And I think that's a useful message there. Um, something to think about. Um, so anyways, I guess that's it. Uh, that's Leopold's assorted writings. Uh, in the next episode, I'll be looking at his journals. journals. Some of his travel journals, some of his hunting trips. Some of his other uh, scientific expeditions. He went out to Canada, to Mexico, and other places. So that'll be one or two episodes, I guess. I'm debating whether to do just one for that because re I read through them and I'm not sure I can I have enough to say to cover two episodes, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, that's that's going to be it for now. So let me know uh, if you have any thoughts about Leopold's career as a whole, uh, his writings, even back to San, San County Almanac. Send me an email, please, at 100pagescast at gmail.com. We're almost done. We're going to move into some of the personal issues, his personal journals and then his letters. Uh, well, the final episode will be his letters. Um, but I, I think we've kind of said all we need to say about his, about his outward public ideas. Um, 
And I think it's been good. I think it's been a lot of fun for me. So anyways, uh, I will uh, see you later. Hopefully we'll have another ecologist on the docket soon. Maybe uh, Autobahn or Bartram, some older ones, maybe John Muir. I, I do want to get my hand on the Wendell Berry series. I think there's two volumes they put out on Wendell Berry. So I look forward to reading those someday. But anyways, for now, uh, we're kind of getting close to the end of this series on, on Leopold. Um, but as always, thanks for listening, and, and I'll see you, see you next time. Now the men on the highways need those jobs we know. Let's put them to work planting new trees to grow. Building new parks where the kids can play. Pushing that cement monster away Oh, stand by me, let's protect this tree From the freeway misery There's a cement octopus sits in Sacramento